Hello, good evening, and welcome to the latest edition of the Game is About Glory's Summer Pod Specials. Tonight, we will be catching up on the latest action at the Euros, which has seen England line up a semi-final date at Wembley with Denmark and Italy and Spain meet for the first time in their history. One of those uh, statements is wrong. And fixing our football focus on that most vital of species, the men who make us gold star students in the skilled art of loud Anglo-Saxon, the match day villain. With me to discuss all of this are Ricky, Gareth and Milo. Hello chaps, how are you? Hi Steph. Hi Steph. Hi Steph. Good. Uh, Been a good weekend so far? Um, yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> and that's our first piece of, uh, of of dialogue that'll be hitting the cutting room floor. So, <laughs> yeah, all right. Yeah. Let's start off with this <laughs> week's action from the Euros. Okay, straight to it. Come on, what do we think of these quarterfinals? Uh, Gareth, lead us off. From an England perspective, what a what a fantastic weekend. Um, everything that could have gone right last night in Rome did go right. We've already we've always recognised that we're on the right side of the draw, but um, let's not dismiss Denmark because they are a really mm. good team. They've real good emotional momentum behind them and there's some really, really good players in there as well. And they beat England at Wembley last year, so we should be aware of that. On the other half, um, Italy-Spain looks like it's going to be a really, really good semi-final. I, I suspect a few neutral observers might say that that would be the people's final. They seem like they're the best two teams of the last four left. But yeah, look, really, really good weekend for the Euros. Really good advert for international football. Ricky, my observations. Um, yeah, England. I mean, what can be said? I think it was nice, really, for um, nice in England game go pretty much the way you would think it was looking at the two teams on paper because that doesn't mm. happen that often, to be honest. Um, and I think credit to Southgate with what he's done. Um, you know, we, I think he's got he's got a bunch of players there that are quite a mixed bags there, really. Sort of players from humble beginnings, you know, uh, Maguire and Trippier. Let's not forget he's got two kids basically from smaller clubs running the centre of midfield uh, with Phillips and Rice. And um, uh, players who've definitely had their fair share of criticism and bounced back. You know, you've got the Sterlings, the Shaws, the mm. Stones and the Pickford. So, um, and a real sell a bunch of youngsters as well. And he's mixing that all together and we seem to be getting somewhere. We, I, I would say in the beginning that maybe it was a tournament too early, but it ain't looking that way at the moment. I mean, that's what I think about England really at the moment. Yeah, I mean, I'd agree with that. I, I, I find this England team really, really likeable i think um you know the england teams in the past I, I i've struggled to to warm to i didn't really like the golden generation but well actually i say didn't really i didn't like them at all I, I i found it very very hard to um to you know to stomach them quite often but i i find this group of players i mean obviously that they're you know they're very inclusive and and um, yeah, progressive. It really feels like a, an England team that the whole of England can get behind, which hasn't been the case in the past. And, you know, for all of the criticism early on about, you know, all the, the, you know, the booing from certain sections of our fans around the players taking the knee, I think this is really important about we've got an England team that is, you know, progressive, it's inclusive, you know, they're humble. And, you know, they're modest. You know, they beat the German team. You don't see us, uh, don't see our players behaving like some of our fans are towards, uh, you know, the opposing, you know, the opposition or anything like that. And, you know, so, you know, they're patriotic without being jingoistic, which is something that the English don't do very well quite often. Would I say, Milo, do you think that's a, re- do you think that's reflection of their manager like a lot of teams 100%. are? 100%. I, I think it's partly Southgate. I, no, no, sorry. I think Southgate deserves a lot of credit for this, but I think this generation of England players, you know, if you, if you look at what, you know, Ashford has been doing during lockdown and some of his activity around there. That's not a result of Southgate. That's that's that he's just a really really decent man. And so I, I think if you look through this team, 
you've got a load of players there. And I think maybe it does come from kind of the humble beginnings you're talking about, Ricky, there. But they're, they're aware. They've got an awareness about them. They're aware of what's, you know, of, uh, you know, that they're in a privileged position, but they can use that position uh, for the best of everything. And just one final point on that. I, I, I wish that, um, England fans behavior was more like our football team because I think we'd be liked and respected around the world a lot more if we behaved like our players did. No, I don't disagree with that. I will come in and say that I think that Southgate actually deserves a huge amount of credit. And uh, it's interesting that, that you mentioned uh, Marcus Rashford, who I think obviously stands for all of us and should stand for everyone who's uh, English as being just a phenomenally great human being for the work he's done uh, with, with mm. uh, helping, you know, unfortunate kids get, get a meal. I mean, how tragic yeah. it is that we have to even have Marcus Rashford be the person to kick politicians into shape. But let's remember that Southgate, and one of the great things Southgate has done is that he has worked with these players from a very young age and he's worked with them through the gears mm. and he's trusted them. And so there is a consistency. I think that regardless of what's been happening at these players' clubs, they come to the England setup and they, they and they every day that they're working with this man, they see they see him and he is quite obviously a, a, a marvellous bloke. I mean, you hear Alan Shearer eulogising him as a person. Um, you know, you can see, you see how he talks, you see how he unifies, you see how mm. he deals with some of the, quite frankly, ludicrously negative press he's, he's been receiving. And uh, I, I think it must be a joy. It's probably the closest I've ever seen in my life to an England side looking like a club. We feel like a club team. We feel mm. like a squad. It actually, in its own weird way, in the unity factor, anyway feels that they're playing for him as much as our squad played for Poch for, for several years and 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 you, you've got to love that so yeah I think all the love goes to Southgate there you know he's got um dog loads of abuse from England fans throughout the tournament with I think actually um yesterday's lineup uh Saturday's lineup was the first time that I've seen a lineup announced without um tons of abuse coming online for uh, you know questioning his decisions and he's been vindic vindicated right the way through. But I, I do think that um, English football fans have a slight kind of mistrust of um, kind of bookish or, you know, quiet mm. coaches. And I think yeah. um, part of it's that, uh, you know, despite the fact that he's, you know, very vocal on the on the touchline and cheers and all the rest of it, I, I think, you know, because his demeanour is uh, a bit more reserved, England fans or you know, English football fans uh, are just a bit mistrustful of that. And I think right. that's part of the reason behind it and why maybe the fans hadn't really taken it to, to heart. It's very good. Um, very good what I was going to say about the inclusiv inclusivity uh, point is that Henderson was wearing rainbow laces last night. Brilliant. And that really brought home to me because the game earlier on in Baku, the uh, stadium security staff or the, you know, the, the stewards in the stadium were taking rainbow flags off Denmark fans within the ground. Um, and we saw similar in uh, in Budapest uh, earlier in the week when the, the flags were being taken off uh, fans outside the stadium there. And I just wanted to make a point really about UEFA and just how shitty and corrupt they are, which I know this is not going to become as news to anyone. Um, but they really need to, you know, if you're holding an international tournament and, you know, this, this is going to go to FIFA and, you know, when, when we're doing this pod in a year and a half's time, then, you know, I'll probably go on a bit of a rant about this then. But we really have got to stop giving, rewarding countries with shitty human rights records with um, staging games in major tournaments. I couldn't agree yeah. more. And Alexander Seferin, who uh, was really high and mighty uh, uh, and hot to trot off the back of the, uh, you know, the, 
the, the ESL, the, the Super League or whatever the acronym was that there mm. was. You know, it was hot to trot about how much of a supporter of the, of the game that UEFA is and everything the game stands for. And to your point, Milo, then now is the time for him to show up and actually be real. I mean, that's what it comes down to. And yep. to stop like being as duplicitous as as well, I guess UEFA has been forever. I, I do want to go back to England uh, for a moment and just say, first of all, and this is something uh, I haven't put in any of the notes, but uh, a friend of mine here, uh, an expat as well called Chris Beresford used to go uh, from from the Bay Area with another expat, Duncan Porter. They used to follow England everywhere and they spent 20 years making trips from here. And between the pair of them, they, they went to over 26 countries um, and including seeing England play in the Ukraine. Two lo- lovely blokes and we used to live vicariously through them and their cheeky stories and so on and so forth. And uh, Duncan sadly passed away a couple of years ago and, uh, uh, well, maybe a little longer now. It only seems like a couple of years ago. But anyway, he would be enjoying this run tremendously. But I say this because Chris is from a town called Penistone, which is also John Stones's town. And another nice little story just to show how inclusive and how aware these young generation is of their community is that Peniston has a football club Peniston Church FC uh, it's a community club I mean everyone pitches in you know someone who has a landscape company does the pitches for nothing someone else that builds um, fast food structures in the UK they put you know a new roof on the stand someone else builds five side pitches and I think uh when the pandemic hit, apparently they had a mortgage of 300 grand on the whole property and with no income, nobody in the community could afford to pay it. And John Stone stepped in and paid it all off. So that club wow. continues to go wow. on and continues. And, it, you know, it's it, they have 3G pitches or five-a-side five pitches, which they let the community use free of charge. And then if you're adults, you know, you have to book it, obviously, and pay. But it's just another it's another reminder of, of what you were saying, uh, Milo, that this is a team that we can really be proud of. It's a team that takes the knee, looks out for their communities, looks out for society uh, and and recognizes the the rights of everyone mm. i mean what and, and he's led by a good bloke i mean wh- how could you not be thrilled by this by this run mm. <laughs> um oh. yeah yeah so just to go back to a couple of the things that happened in the quarterfinals that i thought were worthy of discussion um first of all I mean, one of the absolute biggest pieces of shithousery I've seen in the entire tournament was Immobile convincing Vermaelen that he'd been shot by a sniper. Vermaelen looks up, loses focus, Italy score, and miraculously Immobile is bought, like suddenly finds the energy of life coming to him again. I was just <laughs> disgraceful. I have to just call that out. <laughs> I, I thought it was hilarious. Well, yes, but it wouldn't be yeah. it wouldn't be <laughs> if you were Belgian. I mean, you know, I mean, I guess you should be more professional. But that being said, awful shithouser. Um, are we encouraged by the amount of football that all of these sides have played? Like that, they seem to have been really grinding harder than us, and they seem to be picking up some injuries and fatigue. And and the question here is, yeah. how much will that be a factor in the rest of the tournament? I think two teams basically don't look at that tide one is us and what's going to really help us out is the depth of our squad I think and we've got mm. to know extra time um Italy um I yeah I've enjoyed Italy you know they're, they've got togetherness they've got dynamism they're certainly all pulling in the same direction mm. but um I couldn't help but think as I was watching that game the other night I'm just suspicious do you think they've got a bit of a creative doctor within the ranks so many other teams are flagging, like we were saying, and picking up injuries. I know Spiniola done his, snapped his Achilles or something, but that can happen. It's just that they're relentless. 
No, but their energy levels are ridiculous. And, and, and when I say that, I mean 1 to 11. And, I, and the thing that brought it home to me was even Jorginho was doing this. And when I watch him for Chelsea, he's not really that type of player. He's quite reserved. He's quite measured. He's quite whatever. And I'm just a bit suspicious of Italy. They are going for it, absolutely putting the afterburners on in every game. And some other teams look like they're tired and flagging. And it's not like they're necessarily upsurping teams because they've got brilliant individuals. Admittedly, they're a great team together and they're, and they're a great sum of their parts. But I think that part, those parts might be supercharged. So, Steph, you're talking about kind of the injuries. I think it is playing a factor. And I think it played a factor for England last night. Christoph went off injured, the central defender, on the 35th minute. Yeah. And if you look at the goals in the second half, all of our goals were headed goals with balls into the centre uh, center of defence. So I think, you know, for us last night... Uh, them losing a you know their first choice central central defender on the th- in the thirty fifth minute definitely played a factor and it helped. Denmark looked very very leggy against Czech Republic towards the end, didn't they? They had um, fierce conditions to be playing in. You know, very very hot over there and a lot of travel, so that's really not going to help them. You know, and obviously Ukraine, the Ukraine Sweden game during the mid midweek, people were falling over left, right, and centre yeah. in that one. They it was just I, I think it's already a factor and um I think we've benefited from it. But as you were saying, you know, we've we look relatively fresh. We've been able to rotate players a lot. I think pretty much everyone in the squad has played apart from Ben White hasn't played, has he? The reserve keepers haven't played. Chilwell hasn't played. Connor Cody hasn't played, yeah. yeah. Um, so I think that's it. So, yeah. uh, it, it, you know, it's quite good and, uh, that, you know, not only have been able, been able to rotate whilst actually keeping a, you know, a reasonably steady team, you know, the core of the team, you know, a bit like we saw with Sancho yesterday, mm. you know, it's the first time he played, but actually he slotted in really well, didn't he? And mm. I think it's a yeah. real, a really good position to be in that we can, uh, we can rotate and we can bring those players in. Yeah, I think it might be a tournament for that because other times you always kind of say you want a settled side and you want to learn, but our forward options are so great that we are mixing and matching them and still getting the job done and looking like we're a talent. And one of the things I really like about this England team is actually there aren't really any stars there. If you look at, no. you know, if you look at the, the squad quality, as a whole I think it's pretty even you know in the past you'd look at an England mm. squad and you say there's a first team there and there's a load of people who are you know, clearly second choice and with this I don't I don't see that you know I mean people would argue about you know Mason you know Mason Mount came in yesterday yesterday played very very well you know and, you know Mount versus Grealish or Foden or you know oh. these are I don't see a huge golf in quality between them they bring they what they do is they've all got something slightly different if you look at Saka and Sancho you know similar c- comparable players but not a huge golf indifference between the two of them. You know, I think it's a real luxury. I think some, I think it's some of that's accurate. I think some of that's also down to what we were talking about earlier about perception and also the humility of this mm. squad. There is nobody who is going around slapping their own chest. Then as a matter of fact, mm-hmm. they're patting each other's backs. And I think that that's a, a key factor in that because it does help. Yep. Even if, I mean, I personally think there's a massive difference in our forward line. I think Harry Kane is clearly a superior finisher to anyone we've got. But to your point, to your point, you would not be phased by anyone coming in and taking his place simply because no. nobody's stepping up and saying, I'm the man. They they do it with their with their work on the pitch. They're not doing it with their mouths. And I think that's a yeah. massive deal. So so I, I, I would say Kane is the exception to that. So I'd agree. Yeah. I think Kane, Kane is head and shoulders above the other strikers there. He's not large in it. No, he's no. not large in it. Doing it where it counts. I mean, Kane is our star... And and they do have to just they put on warning that now he's scoring goals. So they're yeah. Gonna... But before we get to Harry, I did want to throw this in once again. Uh, our de facto special guest that nobody knew they were having, uh, uh, my good friend Chris Beresford, uh, did send me this message. It was really interesting. He said, "I was once sat on a plane in 2009 at the side of Graham Taylor." 
after the only game we have lost to Ukraine, because Chris and Duncan have been to Ukraine and from the Bay Area, one of the legendary trips that they both made. Uh, the only thing about the conversation of the two-hour flight to Vienna, I remember, is him saying was, quote, to win a tournament, apart from some luck, is to have fresh and fit players for every game. Because if you don't, you will come up against a team that does. And that's the difference. And you have to say, that is exactly what this tournament is mm. looking like. Look, I don't deny that Italy look that, like the best team in the tournament. And I don't deny that Spain are, are dangerous and could look tricky but these are teams that have simply got more minutes in their legs and with you know and and Italy lost Spinoza Spinoza I mean you know they've lost the possibly not mm. just their most important player uh, but possibly the best left wing back in the entire tournament I don't want to tempt fate but Southgate has managed this squad so well I say when you talk about left backs in the in, in the tournament probably the other one is the one playing for us it's been brilliant how good has he been yeah. and by the way Jose yeah. Mourinho once again remember don't Bully talent. Don't bully players who are skillful and maybe need a little extra. Nurture them and help them. Don't ridicule <laughs> them because they will turn around and they will prove you wrong as Luke Shaw has again. And I hope that Luke Shaw sends you a massive, massive text, tweet or email reminding you of what a bully you were to him. So I'm he's, sorry. He's already keep, done sorry, it. Sorry. He's already keep, done it. Keep, keep setting them up, Milo. <laughs> I know I sound like I sound it's a bit Eni Blyton and you're such a rotter I actually want to call him a complete wanker and worse but anyway I'm trying to be reserved anyway sorry someone rein me in Luke Shaw Um, Spain what do we think (laughs) no Spain come on then anyone's thoughts on Spain yeah they make hard work they make hard work of everything don't they really when you look yeah. at it. you know you know i mean switzerland i mean a lot went for them in that game imbolo went off i actually rate imbolo i think he's actually quite a good player he's quite a varied forward and then they got the red card and then they still managed to go to extra time of penalties and actually ran into a team that were worse at pen- worse at penalties than they what were what an awful so, decision um, that penalty was michael oliver you complete donut gareth do you have any view on that penalty <laughs> yeah. i thought it was one of the worst oh, yeah. decisions of the tournament um well so my my hot take is i didn't see it so I'm afraid I don't have an opinion on it. Well, that's the same as Oliver, I think. <laughs> it was awful. I encourage, I'd, actually, I'd love you to check it out at some point. It was a terrible decision there. And it did completely change the game. As a member of the referees union here, I thought I'd probably just add in that, um, yeah, Michael Oliver, and I said I didn't see it, but Anthony Taylor is the other English referee out there who's been largely praised, particularly for his swift actions with when Christian Eriksen went yeah. down. The other thing I think it's just worth pointing out, this always happens around the tournaments that people say how could the other referees look compared to our one what you've got to remember is that you're look you're watching the best referee or best two referees in each of what about eight or ten different leagues so you're not seeing the 10th or the 11th best Spanish referee as we would see week in week out with the Premier League and whether you like Michael Oliver or not him and Anthony Taylor are our best ones and if all of our referees were to the same standard of those then you'd have a different perception of, of refereeing in the Premier League Harry Kane let me just start our monologue before you I bring you in on this, if you don't mind. I just think that the entire world, and this is a general human concept, ladies and gentlemen, there's nothing wrong with being wrong once in a while. It happens in life. People are wrong. They say something that perhaps, you know, uh, they feel is right and they were wrong. And in most normal civilized society, people will turn around and say, you know, I got that one wrong. And surely that's the wonder and glory of football is we get things wrong. Because if we didn't get things wrong, we'd be football managers and coaches and we're not. We're fans and, and supporters and we do podcasts and stuff. So for any of you 
who listened, who said that Harry Kane should be dropped, shouldn't be played, uh, was out of foot, was, was, was awful, and, uh, you know, he's a plodding donkey and so on and so forth. It's okay. The game is about glory forgives you. You were wrong. Just admit it. Gentlemen? Oh, absolutely. I'm on, I'm on a WhatsApp group that have, uh, contains Cholton, Liverpool and Middlesbrough fans. And for whatever reason, they've had it in for him. I think Liverpool fans have had it in for Harry Kane since he claimed that goal, um, that from the Ericsson free kick, because it would have denied Mo Salah a, a, a golden boot that year. Um, for whatever reason, it just had it in for Harry Kane. So, you know, he's classic, you know, seven season wonder now. But I, I, yeah, I don't understand it. I, I, perhaps every England team needs a scapegoat and, Spurs often being the punchline means that the natural conclusion is that blame it on Harry Kane. Yeah, I think it's hard to... um... I mean, from a Spurs fan's point of view, you've kind of learnt that if he's going for a sticky patch or a barren patch, you just don't go there. You don't criticise Kane or anything because he's rolled out of so many of them before. He comes up trumps in the end. And why would you criticise someone that is a guaranteed gold scorer for you Mm -hmm. and a brilliant team player uh, and a brilliant leader for the team? And maybe other fans aren't as close to him on a weekly basis as we are. And they see him. I mean, because let's face it, he does look like he's a bit running in treacle or plodding sometimes. And then that comes across quite badly visually. But what they need to remember is he's, he's just deadly. And as soon as he gets, and like he has, if we did, let's say we had dropped him, he'd have never got on a roll like mm. he has now. You just, as you say, you never doubt quality. You just keep going with it, keep going with it. And we might, we might get the, we might reap the rewards now. He's got a semi final and a final to come up. Mm. And he could easily be the difference. Easily. Yeah. Well, there's, there's previous to this as well, isn't there? Shearer hit that real barren exactly. streak just before Euro 96 and Terry Venables stuck with him when many people, possibly some of us, would have gone with Les Ferdinand and Teddy Sheringham to play up front in that first game against Switzerland. If you look at England through the tournament, I think a lot of the criticism early on was them just getting used to each other. You, you kind of forget that, uh, you know, they're not a club side. They don't play together week in, week out. It takes it takes a while to get your rhythm. And even, you know, the, the friendlies before the tournament, we saw quite a lot of rotation through those. So you didn't really see our style starting 11 play until we got to the group stage so I think it's just found, taken a while for the team to you know get used to each other click and play like a club side you know be, be, know where people's runs are going to be know what people are doing um you, you know you see this at the beginning of a season don't you where players just you know just takes a little while for them to get the rhythm and I think that's all that we've seen um so I think a lot of the criticism you know the overreaction to you know the lower scores in the earlier games um, was a little unfair. I think it was just the team team getting in the group. I think. I mean, I think one of the things as well with Harry, as as we've all realised, uh, having watched him for many years, he's at his best when he's in rhythm. When he's got a couple of games a week, he actually plays better. And I mean, often Potter would give him, Potter play him in midweek games, and some of us are saying, "Oh, he needs a rest." But I think he's the sort of player who needs he needs to be playing mm-hmm. in rhythm. But the other thing about this, and it plays very much into what you were just saying, Milo, and uh, about uh, getting you know used to each other and so on. I'm looking back at what Gareth. Southgate's done in this tournament and I think it's all about belief and making them believe in themselves and and I I put my hand up as someone who felt that we should be playing um Jack Grealish alongside uh Calvin Phillips um I ultimately trust Gareth Southgate as you all know I'm a I've, I'm a Southgate fan I've I've always liked him uh you know as much as a human being as anything so you know you trust him uh, he's most certainly been vindicated in his decision. I was wrong. Um, he's got the right thing. But when I look back, I look at players like Kane, leaders, genuine leaders, and they have also had to go along with these cautious defensive shapes, which are to the detriment of their game. I mean, Harry did not get service for two games. 
um, you know, that he was in a system that wasn't designed to feed him per se. And he was quite happy to be part of a system that was playing, uh, you know, a, a more careful, um, you know, don't concede first, let's see if we can score football. And then yesterday, we played a Mason Mount. We, you know, we we went for it a little more. Perhaps the passing was a little quicker, and you saw him come. And you saw him come alive. I mean, I think that he's been part of a calculated effort to make sure that these players also feel their way into the tournament mentally and believe. And I think now the belief is real. I don't agree that that the tactics were defensive. I think it was just the players finding their groove. I mean, there's a there's a bit more space against Ukraine, but that was them rather than us. And um, you know, if you look at the first half performance, I don't think that's uh, you know, miles different from what we've seen else uh, you know, other times during the tournament. Um, it's just you know we took our opportunities when they when they came, and we're in the groove now. So just just to clarify, because I mean, you may well be right. You're you're suggesting that it's actually the supporting cast. That was the wrong phrase. You're suggesting that it's the other attacking players around Kane who have learned to read his movements better and are passing quicker to him. Is that what you're suggesting? Because to me, it looked like we were playing 10 yards further forward yesterday. I mean, it really did. It looked like we pushed harder from the start. It looked like we were playing higher. It looked like we were forcing the game a bit more. And that only helps Harry. So, I, I mean, I think, you know, with the group stage, the priority obviously is getting out of the groups. So there's no point taking unnecessary risks. I also think that, you know, if you look at a side, you know, most managers will build from the back. I think, you know, you can't start gung-ho and then and then try and instill defensive solidity after that. I, I think it's just that they've clicked. I think that, you know, it's not that, you know, those players knew Kane's um, runs, but they it's just not smooth until you've been playing a few games together. So I think that's all it is. Do you think it's also worth talking about what we talked about in our chat a little bit uh, around that athletic article about the um, the hub, which is basically all the data mm. analysis and that kind of thing. Absolutely. So I think we've really adjusted from game to game, which I think mm-hmm. thinking about it is great in tournament football. As we said before, it's not club football. You don't get these ge- you don't get these yeah. these teams like every day of the week. So, and we used to criticise. I think that Jose perhaps maybe does that. He focuses too much on adjusting all the time, yeah. and I just don't think you can do that. It's too much information week to week. But in a tournament, when you're literally going to play six seven games, you can do that, and you adjust and you make precautions against the teams you're playing. I think a classic example would be against Germany, where their speedsters Werner. And we put someone up against him who never loses a foot race, which is Walker. You know what I mean? So we put that's why Walker plays. So that we nullify teams. And I mm. think maybe in the Ukraine game, we literally as well just thought they had, had a tough game against Sweden, mm-hmm. and they just weren't. We just thought probably that they weren't. They didn't have many threats, and they weren't going to be that good. So we could be a lot more positive, yeah. and we would. We sort of we we looked a bit like Man City in the first half, just passing it around, passing it around. And they absolutely, were we were definitely more progressive than we had been in the first in the first half of that game. And it's you know it, yeah. I agree. But Ukraine are a side that sit back. So obviously yeah. what we were trying to do is trying to draw them out, weren't we? We were passing across the back, trying to draw them forwards and then create opportunities for the others to uh, you know, run in behind. The, the Denmark game is going to be really interesting because Denmark are probably the side in the tournament um, who've switched formation, you know, similar to how England have, where you know they're very adaptive. Right. Their manager right. is very, very astute. And I find it quite difficult to, um, to, to, to know what we're going to do because I don't know what they're going to do. You're also don't know who's going to be fit. Damsgaard looked like he got an injury. I mean, we just don't know. So it could end up more a tactical battle, which might actually be a bit more testing than mm. knowing what's in front of us, even if yeah. what's in front of us is a good team. It's a very stick or twist situation, isn't it? Because this is a moment where we have got momentum. We have found our identity, so to speak, regardless of the opposition and, and, and so on and so forth. We, we certainly found our swagger. And do you now do mm. you now play off that swagger and emotion? And do you bring that with, obviously, Southgate's you know tactical 
acumen, or do you go back to that approach which he had in the group stages and and against and against Germany of finding an and it is very tough to know. There's you know he'll find the balance. I don't think the approach has changed. I think the approach has always been about trying to find the weakness in the opposition and trying to neutralise the threat. I tell you what, I'll put my head on the block. My vote is that Southgate should do what he thinks is right. <laughs> <laughs> he's got everything right so he's far. He's got everything right so and far. And as so. I said earlier, I am but a lowly football supporting uh, 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 partner, He's, he's so. not going to be led by the data, is he, by any chance? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> We've heard that somewhere before. Yeah. 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 <laughs> I mean, I think a lot of it does depend on injuries. I mean, and I, what I'm interested, do you think that our team, do you think our squad has Refresh. the minutes? Do, do we know the minutes in the Danish legs? I mean, do you think we've got a stat team that knows that? Like, you know, well, this guy's played this. I mean, Harry's going to know about Hoybier. He's going to be able to say, well, basically, you can forget any fucking minutes in his legs. He's just a Terminator. So don't worry. I mean, I, you know, I mean, I wonder. Like we, like we said earlier, we're not quite sure with the Danes how much they're driven by the kind of horrible episode with Ericsson, basically. Because sometimes mm. something like that can just really give you the fuel just to, you know, you're, you're running on emotion. And I know sometimes that can run out and it's not always, you know, it's not always going to get you across the line, but it can go a long way. I mean, it's not quite the same thing, but they, I mean, they had that last minute call off the beach in 92, didn't they? Which then mm. they went all the way to the final and won. So, Which striker yeah. would you rather see them start with? Dolberg or, or Paulson? Who, who, who would scare you more? <sighs> Dolberg, I think. He seems to have his shooting boots on. That second yeah. goal they Definitely. The Merle cross to him outside of the right foot. If there's a just... cross of the cross of the tournament, that's it. The finish was, yeah, finish yeah. was tasty as well. I mean, he didn't. Well, it, it was such a good cross. It gave basically gave all the forwards every chance to score, yeah. and all the defenders very little chance of defending yeah, it. Lovely it was goal, just so yeah. sweet. So sweet. Lovely goal. Lovely goal. Yeah, Yeah, I love that. Yeah, Dolberg frightens me, but Pulse has got the experience as well, you know. So it's gonna be it's gonna be it's gonna be a tough, tough, tough game. I mean I heard um I think it was on the BBC, I heard a stat that apparently I think the four semi finalists played all their group games at home, apparently. Yes, I heard that Mm. as well. And I do think that but I think we're gonna have to suffer at some point. And I do think we're gonna suffer on Wednesday. I think it's gonna be I think it's going to be a dogfight. I don't think... I think it's going to be a real grinder of a game. I really do. I mean, it is... I mean, it's... Things have fallen in our lap. I mean, I mean, as Gareth said, we've got the sort of soft side of the draw. We've had no extra time. I mean, to play six out of seven games at Wembley is just like, what more can you ask for? We've got a bigger crowd there now. I mean, it's almost kind of like... <laughs> okay, well... We just have to fall over the line. Okay, no. well, well, you know... Our head on the block. Okay, let's let's do this. All right, who are we predicting is going to get to the final, and who are we predicting is going to lift the trophy? And as ever, I like to start with the uh, the person who enjoys predictions the most. Um, <laughs> uh, no, no, actually, I'm going to. Li- no, no, actually. Should I prevaricate and just give you give you a chance to tease me about yeah, no, it? Yeah, I'll I'll leave you. Actually, yeah. you know what? You go last, Gareth. Come on, why don't you go first? <laughs> uh, I think Spain will beat England in the final. And I've, I've shared with you beforehand my pattern here that the last four Euros have been won by a Mediterranean team. Yeah. So, so why not go for the good Greece, one? Well, I've also got the theory of the, oh, no. of the, we've alluded to earlier of the team that peaks too early, and I think Italy have peaked too early. I think they Spain might peak. just grind they're, them out. They're permanently peaking. Um, I, I, think I think they might get through. On, I think Spain might get through on penalties or after extra time against Italy. Penalties? Oh my god! <laughs> I, I think okay. England will get through because I think we're I think we're stronger than Denmark. No, Jeff. I mean, all right, Ricky. Before you give a prediction, if Italy was as it was a genre of music, would it be speed metal or would it be gabba techno? Which would it be? Come on. Uh, probably, yeah, something like. Yeah. Yeah, Gabba Techno. It is a bit, they Constant. are a bit Gabba Techno, I suppose. They are, they, they are. Yeah. <laughs> I think. But yeah, um, <laughs> them, 
Uh, us and Italy in the final. It's going to be a classic because we might be able to match them for energy just for the depth of squad and basically youngsters. We're youngsters, aren't we? Is Harry Kane you know going to I mean? lift so. his first ever trophy on Sunday? Yeah, I hope he does because that could have a good knock-on effect for us as hope well. Hope has because... nothing to do with it. I want a, I want a firm prediction. <laughs> Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, well, I don't know, actually. You asked for the finalists. I'm not giving you a winner No, yet. I did ask for who's <laughs> going to be lifting the trophy on Sunday. Oh, did you? Yes. Um, Gareth, yeah, Gareth, go Gareth on, was it, right it, in there. He was I, right in Spain winning. That's it, because Mediterranean. I, I think Ricky's picked up by script. <laughs> oh, was, yeah, I was thinking. <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> um, it's very disappointing, this, Ricky, because I'm uh, trying to set it up so as Milo has I'm, the final I'm word. I'm going for Italy. It's, I'm going for Italy. Oh... Well, I, okay, I, I, I'm going to let Milo have the last word on this, so I'm going to come in here. I think that we are going to edge past Denmark an extra time. I think it'll be an extra time game. I think we're going to suffer. I think it's going to be an incredibly hard game. I think we're going to probably need a, a, a pretty big slice of luck, but it, it's going to be tough. But we'll get a, we'll get over the line. I think Italy will beat Spain, and I think we will beat Italy. Uh, I just, I, 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 you know, I think, especially for the likes of Harry Kane, who have had to tolerate uh, people like Cellini, uh, shithousing them in the past uh, and and let it not be said that you know the Juventus game that we played in the Champions League uh, I surely will have taught our players an awful lot about European football and how it works at the top top level um, I think we've got all the tools to uh, overcome anything whether it be this incredible wave of energy that Italy have and, and don't get me wrong talent is everything but they have lost Spinoza and I think that's a massive loss I think that loss is very very hard to, to get over he's been a top top player for them and so I think it's going to be a case of we've got one player more on the bench that maybe hasn't been seen and hasn't had an impact and I am completely buying into uh, seeing Harry Kane lifting the trophy next Sunday albeit there is a game on Wednesday and I recognise that I don't want to jinx it but it is a prediction and we are predicting and now we're going to come to the king of predictions for the game is about glory the unprevaricator the man who lays it on the spot like that Milo. Uh, we'll lose to Italy in the final. Yeah, you said it. Kane's, Kane's well-placed for the golden boot, isn't he? He is. So he's he's on three goals now. Uh, Ronaldo and Stick are on five. So with two games left, I think he's going to... He's He's got two how, or three more goals how, in him. How so. do they decide a tie-break in that? Paper, scissors, stone, isn't it? Oh, is it? Okay. Stick. Paper, stick. <laughs> so there's only one blindly optimistic person here. Definitely a bit of the fan in me in saying it. There's no... I mean, I can't deny it, but that's who I am. Italy are the best team I've seen in the they tournament, are. but I think we're not far behind. I, I was really... Yeah. I mean, I, mean, I, I think Ukraine are pretty decent. I mean, they they were running on empty, weren't yes. they, yesterday? Yes. And I think yeah, I think that really helped oh, us. Um, but yeah, I think they're they're a decent team. They're well coached. Um, and I thought it was a really impressive um, result. And you know, mm. and very patient. And I, I think we were again. I think we were lucky that it wasn't at home because I think at home uh, the fans would have would have been getting on their back for passing the ball around and trying to hold possession in the in the first half. Um, I think there would have been a lot of frustration with that, and it was entirely the yeah. right thing to do. But uh, there would have been a lot of groans and um, just pass the fucking thing forwards and all this kind of <laughs> shit. Um, and Southgate's right, and if you think that, you're wrong. I agree yeah. with that. I think Southgate said that, didn't he? That it was good that we had that one game where we went somewhere, especially after all the buzz of Germany and all that. It just kind of got us away from that. And as you say, because we're playing a lesser team, definitely it just yeah. And we, I think we've had some good results in the past out in Italy mm. as an England team. So I agree. Um, yeah, that was good. Yeah, I was reading this week about the World Health, World Health Organization, 
And um, they're sort of concerned that it's quite feasible, and I wouldn't probably argue with this, that the Euros has been a super spreader event. Yeah. And um, they're just worried about the amount of infections that have come back from all the... Because you look at yeah. some stadiums, Budapest has been full, and yeah. quite a few of the others had a lot of... And of course, the other thing you see a lot of is these fan parks where just people mm-hmm. are like, you know... I mean, when people are at football and drinking, they're not really thinking of precautions or anything. I, I think the Scottish government have said that they think it was a factor in the rising cases there. Yeah, no, I agree. I think it's crazy. Um, and uh, I, I worry about you know, having the you know two semi-finals and final at Wembley when our figures are as high as they are is, is concerning. And I th- I think um, whilst it's been fun having a tournament in multiple countries, uh, doing it during a pandemic and encouraging people to travel around more is just is a really really bad idea. <laughs> it sounds like a co- it sounds like a comedy sketch. <laughs> Basically, like commercial commercialization over health of a nation or nation should we sell? Basic say basically. That sounded like a line from a Manchester man. Commercialization over the health yeah. of a nation. No good, man. <laughs> I like it. Sean Ryder. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think the smart thing to do would have been to host it in one country and, and probably. Probably, well, no, not here at all, because our, our case numbers are so high. Yeah, We're but what I'm saying place. is, our numbers are going up, but at least the hospitalizations and the death graph Wouldn't, is, no, is diverging pe- from that, though, isn't it? But people traveling here to attend games... But then take it is, back, yeah. you mean? Oh, no, yeah. we just have our phones only, in our country and our fans only. I think holding it in a country with low low case numbers would have been a smart idea. <laughs> <laughs> is, there, is there any like that at the moment, though? I'm not sure what the others. Well, yeah, most of yeah, most of um, uh, Central Europe is uh, far far better than so. You know, Germany's far lower than us. Um, but I mean, you, you'd really need to look at. It's going to if you're doing it like that. Uh, and at short notice, it would need to be one of the major leagues, really, yeah, wouldn't it, it, in Europe, yeah. because they've got the facilities to do it. It's just a terrible situation because, it can, once again, it under, for me personally, it underlines yeah. my own raging hypocrisy because I've really enjoyed watching the fans back in stadiums. But equally, when the game is over, I understand and recognise what an absolute cluster it is to do that. And, and really, it is. As you but, said, yeah. Ricky, it's quite... I mean, I don't want to get into a moral dilemma thing but it really is not the right thing to do if you're meant to be looking after people it's incredibly inconsistent then i think of all my friends in the music business who are turning around and saying well hang on you're going to let all these people into wembley and we have to do this and this and this and we can't even do bloody gigs properly mm. it's, it's, it's just ridiculous. it is the inconsistency from the rules and i know yes. they ask each stage in what they think they could do like two or three weeks before capacity wise but like you look at amsterdam and there's like a, not a very big crowd there and then you watch mm. holland play in budapest and there's like eight thousand dutch people all just behind the goal and yeah. I think, well, those people are from that country. I presume most of them are. I don't think there's many Dutch people in Hungary. And, and see, and, yeah, and and they've either flown there or they've spent yeah. all that time on a train or whatever and, yeah. you know, driven and there. Just, you know, just, yeah, it's crazy. Yeah. It's crazy. Yeah. Of, course, of course, this is going to see a rise in cases right the way across Europe. It's crazy. Yeah. Bizarre. But that's but my then worry is is obviously if we escalate in other countries that haven't got the vaccine on ahead with the vaccinations like we are, then it almost becomes even more stupid then that we've done it. Yes, the EU is catching up fast on the UK. So if you look at the vaccination rates, it's higher it, in most European countries now. It's higher than the UK. Um, so although uh, the overall percentage of our population that's been vaccinated is higher, hmm. their daily rate is kind of higher than ours now. So oh, I see. Um, it, yeah, it's, the, the gulf isn't as big as it was uh, a short while ago. Any- 
anyway, well, it's going anyway. to be fun. Uh, and of course, by the time we next record uh, the game is about glory, we will have the answers to our predictions. So now, uh, as you know about the game is about glory, we do strive to remain, uh, shall we say, civilized yet discussive. However, tonight we are going to illustrate and talk about a few players that have uh, boiled all of our blood several times over and forced cavalcades of cursing to flow from our mouths at extraordinary decibel levels. Uh, I mean, I can personally attest to uh, having spouted large amounts of classic Anglo-Saxon at some of the players you're about to hear about. We will also... uh, try and take a little look back objectively and see which of our own players past and possibly even present would get full villain and shithousery stripes in the eyes of other supporters and before i get to the the modern meat of matters tonight uh just lads i just want to read a couple of uh couple of names from the past uh you know ties on a ball weighed a pound more in the sky was only what was above you with clouds in it kenny burns graham Souness, tommy smith vinnie jones paolo de canio Duncan Ferguson, Mark Dennis, Harold Schumacher, the entire Barcelona team of 1982, and uh, a special mention for Gennaro Gattuso, who kind of straddles the line between classic and that. But uh, I think in light of recent, you know... G- no to Gattuso. Yeah, no to Gattuso. No to Gattuso. Uh, so, you know, let's first of all discuss the true nature of a villain um you know there's the ones we love to hate there's the quiet villains who qualify by virtue of their own silent physical shithousery and there's the pantomime villains who you know flounce about and scream blue murder if they fracture a a hair follicle which i think is acceptable how do you differentiate between a pantomime villain and a genuine villain uh milo i'm going to throw that one at you the pantomime villain um I, i think they're most like the heel you get in wrestling so the cartoon like bad guy uh, who I don't know much about modern wrestling. I don't I don't watch uh, the American ones, so all my reference points to this would be a pensioner from Warrington hitting giant haystacks with a handbag. Um, oh, yeah. During, yeah, so uh, <laughs> but I think there's there's the air of that kind of wrestling um, kind of cartoon bad guy about it, and the one that springs to mind for that would be Robbie Savage, who is very very difficult to take seriously as a hard man and. Basically, he liked the attention. I think that's what it was about with him. You know, he was, uh, I mean, he played at the top level for a decent while, but I think he was like, as a youth player, he was on Man United's books, wasn't he? And then he obviously didn't make it at that level. And I, I think probably it, a lot of it with him was overcompensating. And, uh, yeah, just looking for attention. The genuine villain, there's always a sense of menace about. And so I think, you know, you, you mentioned kind of Sudis, who was just a nasty bastard, wasn't he? Um, you know, Roy, Roy Keane would be another one where, you know, on occasions would just set out to hurt people and and not really think twice about it i i have to say uh he is when you when we say pantomime villain and i don't know about the rest of you boys and feel free to chip in i mean i the first robbie savage was the vision that i got within the first 10 words of what milo was saying um so ricky does a villain always have to shit house the crowd do they always have to play to the gallery to the cheap seats if you will which robbie savage most certainly did oh robbie savage certainly did um and we say it with affection now really don't we i mean let's be honest we do say it with a slight twinge of affection sort of like ah you know silly old bugger like you know it's not like malicious but yeah but he's still in our face on the telly a lot and he's still a a bit of a fucking prick on there, let's be honest. <laughs> but did you see the fo- did you see the photo of him 
the other day at the stadium and what he had on. Mm. I mean, honestly, I mean, Robbie. I mean, he's, he's kind of all right. He's he's likable, isn't he? He's likable. I think he's like. But anyway, okay. Yeah. Back to the point. Of the question: do, do you think a villain has to shit house the crowd? Um, no, not necessarily. I mean, not not if they're like the, the the quiet assassin type. Then obviously they don't need to like. You know, they just go around maybe nobbling people or putting like little juices in. But um, but if they do, it certainly layers it on. You know what I mean? To think, you know, how reactive we can be in the stands, it certainly adds to the show. But, I mean, is it is it good reacting to them? I mean, at the end of the day, it's fuel to them, I think, isn't it? When you think about it, it's it what urges them on. And, you know, and they always know that very rarely anyone's actually going to come across the barriers and do anything to them. So they can give it large as much as they want, really. Quite rightly so. I mean, you've hit a very... I think there has to be a relationship between the villain and the fans yes. so I don't think they necessarily have to court it but I think there mm. has to be with all the villains there's a two way <laughs> there's a two way dynamic isn't there between the fans and that player and I think that's probably what sets them out apart because you can have a, an industrial midfielder who isn't necessarily a villain mm. I think it's about that relationship yeah I think and probably it's history isn't it sometimes you build up mm. like a bit like the Danny Rose thing for other clubs and a bit like you know our Charlie Adam thing and that kind of thing well and again uh, this is goes to Gareth I'll ask you the is there a villain in all teams and what is their role to their team like you know what was Robbie Savage's role to, to, to Leicester or to whoever you know what, to get into that a little bit well I, th- I think we've probably touched on the two ingredients for that pantomime villain there's the there's the ones that play up to the crowd so the one I'm going to mention and I've shouted all sorts of things at him is Ben Foster for his time-wasting antics. Now, that mm-hmm. is playing up to the gallery. That's a great one. Then you've also got the other um, pantomime villain who looks like he's just going out there to hurt your team and hurt your mm. physically hurt them. And I think Robbie Savage probably covers both of those boxes quite well because he definitely just tried to hurt people. And also, he did play up to the crowd. It was very much a two-way interaction with him. So I think those are the two ingredients or the other two types of pantomime villains that you might have. And do you think they're... Uh, do you think just to, uh, in terms of a villain in all teams, do you think a successful team always has to have a villain? Do you think you need someone who's prepared to do that shithousing and to, and quite unquote take one for the team? I mean, you look at a player like Cesc Fabregas, who as talented as he was, was a top class shithouse for whoever he played for, but ultimately was an extremely successful footballer whose trophy cabinet cannot be argued with. Yeah, look, I, I think all good teams will have players who just don't care how they get the end result as long as they get the end result. And if that involves shithousery or if that involves some beautiful piece of skill and scoring a goal, then then so be it. They just won't care. And I think that when you get to the level of a professional footballer to get to the level that they're getting in, you've really got to have that determination and that focus to try and win at all costs. Can I suggest a new sub-rule for this villain category as well? It's only just occurred to me, so this wasn't, you know, this is off the cuff. But I think to be a true villain, you've probably got to be um, hated by more than one set of fans. So mm, I think it's got yes. to go beyond inter-club rivalry. So, you know, when you talk about Fabregas, I wonder how many, you know, outside of us, how many other fans would oh, put him in? Uh, well, I mean, to answer your you think oh, so? to answer your question, first of all, I have to now confess to everyone, despite being one of the people who helps drive this show week to week i actually have taken this villain question as a general question and not just as a villain to us so i am looking at this Mm. in a more holistic way but i think you're absolutely right i think we have to you you can only really qualify as a villain if it's holistic and across football oh i could i could i think west ham fans hate fabregas man united fans hate fabregas liverpool fans hate him i think yes absolutely i think there's a a whole he threw the pizza at ferguson didn't he he was responsible for pizza gate so he's got manchester united United, oh absolutely i think 
that loads of people. Oh yeah, he's he's petulant, isn't he? Oh, I've, let's let's not let's not give him too much more time. He doesn't deserve it. It's horrible. <laughs> I mean, needless to say, I think the Battle of the Bridge. Um, uh, I think there's some of us that could probably say some things off air about how positively we felt in certain aspects of that game. So, but we'll leave it there, shall we? I mean, it's like, <laughs> well, actually, it may go into other teams looking at some of our players as shithouses, I suppose. But anyway, mm. we. but no, a very good point. Yes, I do believe that to be a true villain, you're absolutely right. It, do, it does have to have a certain universal quality throughout football. I, I would agree with that. And I think at least, you know, a half dozen other sets of fans would have to be also be giving this player the similar treatment. But we spoke about Boo Boys in an episode back in February, which was focused on giving flack to your own players and, and how we felt about that and, and how, uh, you know, frankly, unfortunate that can, that can be for, for all concerned and how poor it can be you know is it different with opposing players it certainly seems different rules apply but I mean you know is there anything that is off limits and I suppose we should address this personally one by one I think that's the best way to deal with this um you know so what's off limits for 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 you with regards to um your relationship with an opposing villain open floor I mean for me it would be discriminatory language or you know uh, insults uh wishing death on someone um those are the main two, I think. And um, Spurs fans have certainly crossed the line on both of those on occasions. And I, I think we were wrong. Yeah, we're, I think we're wrong when we don't... I don't have a problem with abusing uh, a villain. I think, again, as I said earlier on, I think there's a two-way relationship there. But there's a line. And, uh, yeah, I think, um, you know, homophobic or racist abuse or, um, you know, wishing death on someone is the wrong side of that line. Um, calling someone a wanker is, is fine and should be encouraged. <laughs> Yeah, and I'd probably add to that the aspersions on their sexuality, and that's probably not like um, yeah, yeah, smart, yeah. is it? So I said, I said yeah. homophobic abuse. So oh, yeah, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I think, I th- yeah, I, th- I think anything that you say that that could offend anybody else in the crowd or anyone else listening is off limits. Mm. Yeah, I agree with all that. You know, I told a story a couple of weeks ago. Um, you know, sort of a, a, a cheeky little story as it was about Graham Souness um, and me as a teenager. I mean, I look back at the teenager who did that. I was, did laugh at that one. It was funny, but when you look back at it, it's the it's the behaviour of a teenager, and it's 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 frankly, it's not really very smart, is it? Can I just say, Steph, when I listened to that, it was great. You really approached the story with like quite a bit of malice, and I thought that you was going in there to nobble him, and then when you said you knocked him and then ran away into. <laughs> The old <laughs> ran away into the darkness. It just made me laugh. Well, because he was exactly that. It was a cheeky little nudge that I wanted it. Yeah, I wanted it, it to funny. be everything that he'd done to Tony Galvin, and essentially it was a cheeky little nudge. He actually probably thought a fly had landed on him. Is probably the truth of it. But, but in fairness, it does bring up a more serious point for me uh which is uh recently there was um i don't look at twitter as, as you guys know but occasionally you know we share a tweet amongst us and some absolute plankton um oh sorry that's an insult to plankton they're useful some absolute moron um accosted sol campbell in a public place recently and started just basically abusing him and taunting him and i have no love for what sol campbell did to tottenham hotspur i don't think anybody does but at the end of the day this is a human being and he's trying to get on with his day and I think that's off limits. I don't think you abuse people mm-hmm. in public. I think that's absolutely off limits. It should not be allowed. And I'm one of the only people who uh, will say that I thought that when Cantona went into the stands at Crystal Palace, I saw a certain justification. If you're going to stand mm-hmm. 
and volley levels of abuse at players repeatedly, you have to expect there will be a return. I'm not saying it's it's right, but you have to expect a return yeah. on your investment, whatever it is. And this goes to Eric Dyer back and you know back. I, I agree. First mm-hmm. of all, I must say I agree with everything that you've all said. Uh, you know, racism and homophobia. N- no, you know, I've turned around and told people around me singing some of these Adebayor songs and everything. I've told them to shut the fuck up. I won't have mm-hmm. it in my ear at a space. None of it. But. I think on a wider scale, I think that the relationship between, uh, you know, a, a villain and a fan, it, it, it's, it's a stadium thing. Uh, but even there, if a player turns around and gives it back to you, you have to accept it. Mm-hmm. And I don't want to steal your thunder, Gareth, because I know you're going to talk about a, a couple of villains. But I will just say one person. I hope you don't mind. Ian Wright, to me, personified what a villain is in the best way. You gave it. You got it back. And at the end of the day, it was a fucking football match. That's what it was. He understood what was going on. You gave it. And when it was all over, he was able to give you a laugh and a wink and a smile. And and I have to tell you, Ian Wright is actually one of my all-time favourite football pundits. He's brilliant. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I love him. I, I mean, I, I, I bought his autobiography. And I think, of, I think of some of the things I shouted at him in the past and then some of the looks he gave us. And it's like, it probably wasn't good behaviour on either of our parts, but we accepted the contract. And that's where it begins and ends for me. I think he's a player who fed off it as well. Yeah, I mean, good for him. You know, let's face it. Ian, <laughs> let's face it. Ian Wright shoved it back down our throat, you know, ten, t- you know, ten did. times over, didn't he? And good he? for him. Oh. And that's the way it goes. So I think in a messy way, those are my limits. I'm not sure if I was clear. Okay, let's get to the meat of it. Now I want <laughs> your pantomime villain, your straight up villain. I want you to describe why. And and Gareth, again, I'm terribly sorry. I know I sort of launched, launched in a little bit on your territory i hope you appreciate that there's a slight inflection of my angle as opposed to yours so i hope i haven't stolen your thunder too much but but go but go for it sure you've basically done to me what david nugent did to jermaine (laughs) defoe when he smashed that ball over the line from three inches (laughs) uh, in an england i'm really sorry if i have we can cut my a lot of my bit out but anyway carry on no 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 please don't you you articulated it very well ian wright was my um, pantomime villain and i think it's interesting because i would have said at the time that he was our bleeding villain he was he extended beyond a pantomime villain but i think we've just discussed the ingredients of a pantomime villain and he ticks all those boxes but subsequently just like you he's one of my favorite football personalities he is someone if he was walking down the street despite all of his connections to our nearest and dearest I would love to go over and have a conversation with him. Um, I think that he was really, really refreshing hearing him in the media. So initially with, with Talk Sport, which is a a media channel with questionable um, credibilities with its punditry, but I thought he was he, I thought he was really, really good on that one. He's spoken of an affection for Glenn Hoddle when he grew up um, as well. I think there really there probably was. A, a a two-way level of respect between Ian Wright and between and, and between Spurs. Um, however, as as you spoke about Ian Wright so well, it just reminded me how much of a pantomime villain Ben Foster is, and how my um my my heart beats even faster when I know that Ben Foster is playing against us because mm-hmm. I know that we are going to get eighty-five minutes of boots being kicked against posts to take goal kicks, um, water being drunk, balls from ball boys being. Um, completely missed and three balls on the pitch to delay the restart of play. It doesn't matter who he plays. So I'm, of course, 
I suppose the, the caveat to this, it doesn't help that we always go five minutes, we always go one nil down against his teams after five minutes and get to endure that for 85 minutes. Um, I mean, maybe he's just paying back the, um, the you know, the the misdemeanors of, of getting lobbed by Paul Robinson mm. from 95 yards in the um, embryonic stages of his career. But whenever Ben Foster comes back to Spurs, you know what you're going to get from him and he gives it, he really does mm. play that pantomime villain. Um, but like most of our pantomime villain, he falls into that category of everyone who speaks to him says what a bloody nice bloke he is um, I think he does some really good charitable work as well um, so he's my pantomime villain um, my and I'm going to go very very route one with this one but my main <laughs> leading um, villain in the history of Tottenham Hotspur is Sol Campbell not for what he did but for the way that he did it so the way that he led the club down the garden path in those last 12 to 18 months of his contract it's expiring interesting just when Enoch took over the club but this this pre-existed um, Enoch and Levy's time went back into the Alan Sugar era where I think the club were not very keen to sell him but very willing to sell him because they would have got best part of 20 million but back in 2000 2001 was a heck of a lot of money for a player who was there was an absolute chasm between him really and anyone else in our team except Ginola of that time and he said he was a Spurs man he said that and I think he genuinely believed that that he was a he was a Spurs man said that he would only leave the club on really good terms and then he did and then on the what, 3rd of July 2001 he turns up in an Arsenal shirt having signed for them on a free contract and yeah it's just it's just the fact that he doesn't recognise the fact that what he's done has upset us in, in, in such a big way. Yeah, some great notes in there about the Arsenal class of 2002 as well which uh, I was hoping you'd, you'd also share because uh, I think that this paragraph is probably going to resonate with pretty much every single Tottenham of a supporter in existence so I leave the floor is yours well I, th- I think in contrast to Ian Wright and that was the early to mid 90s but I thought that Arsenal sort of the class of well the Wenger the first that first Wenger team that included the likes of Henri Perez Jungberg Vieira Jens Lehmann there was just a real arrogance about them and they really looked down their nose on on Spurs, which perhaps they were perhaps entitled to, as they nearly doubled our points tally every season around that time. But they just didn't get the rivalry with Spurs. Um, there wasn't any sort of underlying respect between them. And the incident that really stands out to me was the um, when they, unfortunately, when they won the league at White Hart Lane in 2004, or at least when they got the points, which meant that they were mathematically certain of winning it. You might remember that game. They were 2 up and they absolutely dominated us for about an hour. But then we pulled one back. And then there was that incredible incident in the in stoppage time when Jens Lehmann got Robbie Keane in a headlock and the penalty was given against them. And we scored from that. And what I think people forget, that that point was the one that made us safe that year. We very, mm. very nearly got relegated that season. So not only did we get the point that kept us up, we also took two points off Arsenal having been 2 down um, and it avoided losing in a North London derby and the, the crowd went as bananas the Spurs crowd went it was euphoric when we scored that penalty as they've been perhaps there any other goal that I can I can remember since then and you can see Thierry Henry he's talking to Maurizio Tirico and he's saying why are you so happy why are your crowd so happy why are they cheering like this you're in 15th place in the league he just didn't get it at all. And that really sort of summed up the arrogance that I feel about the Arsenal team of that era. When I was talking earlier on about the um, kind of humility of the England team, that Arsenal side was the polar opposite of that, yeah. wasn't it? Well, before we get, move on uh, from this, I just want to add that when Thierry Henry scored at the clock end and then took an 85 to, well, it must have been a 100-yard run back 
to knee slide in front of us mm. at the clock end in the corner and just like he was down like this, like going, and that is one of the most anger inducing celebrations I have ever seen. It was appalling. How many times have we seen our players booked for um, celebrating in front of their fans or giving it to them? And then he does that. Yeah. And he ran. Yeah, Nasser Chadley got booked, didn't he? He ran, but not just that. He ran about 100 yards. And that's why I think every Spurs supporter will tell you that probably the the greatest non-Spurs goal celebration for them in modern times was when Adebayor (laughs) did it to them for Man City. I mean, I've I've watched that on repeat many times. Anyway, I'm dragging us off in this increasingly baggy episode, which is going to leave Milo with more work than he wants to be doing on a July weekend, I know. So, so Ricky, take take up the cudgel. Go for it. Yeah, we'll do it. I'll just... I just echo everyone's sentiments about Wrighty. I just, I love the man really, and he's just such a breath of fresh air. He's so sincere, and that's in light of. I'm just going to ask you this, Gareth, because you'll probably know this. Because I remember once being in the Paxton Upper on a night game in the '90s, close game against the Goons, thinking, "Can we do it this time?" And he came in at the back post and scored a late, late winner. And he wheeled away, flashing that smile and doing the old arms and all that kind of thing. And it was just. It was despair, it was disgust, it was gut-wrenching. And to think of those words I just said about Wrighty, if that was back in the 90s, I would never, ever think this day would come where I'd say, (laughs) Wrighty, I I love you, Wrighty. And he's like a gooner of all time. And he's just, he's such an all right bloke. He's so, you know, he's got no real edges to it. Before you go on, and again, I've just got want to throw this in. I mean, do we all agree that, like, there is a certain edge with some of these incredible villains, and I put Tony Adams in there to a degree, where you have a grudging respect for them because they were their club men. Like, I look at Adams, and as much as I've abused him and everything, I have a, a ton of respect for him because I know like for example when George Graham asked him to come across with him as part of the coaching staff or whatever to to ours he's like absolutely not I could never do that and there's something in me that says good for you mate I've got a lot of respect for you for that I mean do we actually respect these players because they were so much of their clubs well yeah I think so I mean I was gonna I had a little theory and a question similar to that which was basically do you give a bit more leeway acceptance or um or respect to a villain if they if they undoubtedly a talented player you know what I mean in other words I mean they can have a bit of ask you know it can be a bit of a shit house and a bit that's that bit if they're actually got quality and they've got class as in in the way they play football I mean I put like Keane and Tacanio in that bracket do you give them a bit of leeway because you just think well I'll respect you as a footballer and as you say you you respect them because they are their club men they are their talisman they are their their leader and that and I think I think there is a bit of that I mean, uh, compared to some, you know, the Savages or or the other one we've not mentioned, I think, is Suarez, who's just probably, you know, who's just... I'm going to put myself on mute so as perhaps this show can actually end and I can stop interjecting. <laughs> okay. So, sorry. So let me do that. I'll do my bit. <laughs> yeah, and basically my villain is Costa, Chelsea's Costa. Uh, no, my pantomime villain is Costa, basically because he's kind of... He was a man who's just constantly looking for a flare-up, looking, looking on the edge, looking for a bit of needle... And he's, he was a man seemingly a few words, but many actions. And they were generally, I'd say, like aggressive actions. <laughs> you know, he never he never really said much, but he always gave it the look, he gave it the stare, gave it the bumped into you, done that kind of thing. But I think under all, underneath it all, he was a bit of a pantomime villain because he'd still do the other stuff, which he was like the diving for pens, falling down at the kind of minute touch, you know, a minuscule touch. And so he, although he's, I mean, obviously his, his face belied his age anyway didn't he? he looked a bit like he was rugged and he was tough but i think underneath he was i think he was maybe having a bit of a laugh at us all really he was just really trying to stoke everyone up 
and whether that's the crowd or the team, you know, the, the opposite, like our players in, in most cases. So he'd be my pantomime villain. And my actual villain is, <laughs> right then, once again, we're going to go back to the San Siro, the rainy night, the crouchy goal. And you're probably all going to be thinking, I'm going to be talking about the old bulldog chewing a wasp, Gattuso. But no, it ain't him. <laughs> it ain't him having a go at our Joe. It is Matthew Flamini. Matteo, Matthew, mm. whatever his name is, Flamini. He put an awful reducer on Charlie Corluca that night. And right in front of me, poor old Charlie got wheeled out on the stretcher through the plexiglass, opened the door. And Flamini was just... Oh, he's one of those players that I think who... I think he probably thought that they had the talent to play maybe a different position or a more creative role. They had a higher opinion of themselves. And when they then failed to do that, they then resigned themselves to just sort of projecting a kind of hatchet man, tough guy persona. persona. And basically that makes me sick. I think Charlie Adams was a bit like that. He he had a good season at Blackpool once where he looked quite creative and quite productive and then just resulted in just becoming just a nasty piece of work. And Flamini is exactly mm. that kind of person as well. And I think, he was he part of the, the Arsenal squad we were talking about? Yeah. When they're around? Yeah. And oh, I think it's almost as though they sometimes think, well, I could do that role and that, that will get me in the team. Because if I want to do yep. something a bit more creative, uh, this team's got a load bit more creative players than we have and I'll never get in it. And... Yeah, no, that's my two. That's my two. Hate Flamini. That would be true of Savage as well, wouldn't it? Yeah. It's almost, in, in thinking, thinking about it from our point of view, it's almost the kind of role you think Winks might have to fall into because he tries really mm. hard, but all it's doing is ironing out his great creative size. And I don't think, I don't think Inks, Winks would become that because he's not that, he, he's, he's not really got that streak. Lamella probably falls into that category a bit, doesn't he? I think, yeah, I thought, mate, yeah, that's true. Because I think when he came from Roma, I, I didn't think he had some of the attributes that he's ended up having. I thought he was mm. a kind of Van Persie type <laughs> striker. <laughs> and obviously, he's just a complete nasty piece of work. No, so, so, so the best Spurs example of that is Vinny Samways, who's a very mm. nice technical player at Spurs, but he reinvented himself in Spain as a hatchet man. Mm. Oh, okay. I don't know that. I didn't know that, Gareth. I just yeah. yeah no, I, I, thought, I think he, I think he got more red cards in Spain than he committed fouls for Spurs. Oh, okay. It's I, interesting, isn't brilliant. it? Brilliant. I just want to say, if you took your comment, Ricky, about Lamella out of context, it would just sound like the most <laughs> glorious bouquet of praise being bestowed upon a player. It would be great, <laughs> Milo. Uh, uh, onwards, my friend. My pantomime villain is uh, Ronaldo, not the real one, the uh, the Portuguese one. And the reason I'm putting him in there, I mean, he's done. So, yeah, fantastic footballer, yeah, one of the greatest of all time. But he does love it, doesn't he? And uh, does l- enjoy uh, winding up other players and other fans. But the reason I was putting him in, in there is uh, I was thinking back to 2008 when uh, it was Berbatov's first game back at the lane and um, Ronaldo was playing for Man United. And for 90 minutes, every time he touched the ball, we were all chanting, wanker, 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 wanker. <laughs> every time he touched the ball and it really got to him and it was really funny and um, the game itself I say Woodgate went off injured after I think it was quite early I think it was about 10 minutes into the game and Huddleston came on and we we Charlie moved across to centre back and Sakura moved back to right back so Sakura was on Ronaldo for most of the game and I remember him dumping Ronaldo on his ass just in front of us um, I, was sat, I was on the shelf that day he's just uh, yeah dumped him on his ass. And but yeah, just uh, just happy memories of calling one of the greatest footballers who's ever graced the pitch a wanker for ninety minutes. Really, really cheered me up on a day really when Berbatov should have been getting tons. Really, we we focused entirely on Ronaldo, and um, it was fun. And my my real villain is uh, John Fashionu. 
And the main reason for that is for, well, for breaking Gary Mabbott's skull and nearly blinding him uh, with an elbow, uh, which he didn't even, Keith Hackett didn't even give him a yellow card for uh, during the game. And um, yeah, I mean, Mabbott nearly lost his, uh, nearly lost an eye and he did two hours of surgery to put the socket back together again. He also suffered a broken cheekbone. Uh, which required a metal plate beneath it. And um, I think it was you the first player to wear a, a, a mask when he came back. It's certainly the first I remember. But um, uh, he was out for he was out for a month after that. If you did it on the street, you'd be arrested and you'd be in prison for it. And so it was horrific. And I think also with fashion, the way he treated his brother, uh, just horrific again. So I've got no time for the man. I remember the challenge and I also know the relationship of which you speak by proxy of having read it a lot about it. Um and, and yeah, I, I, I would agree with that. Yeah, it was a horrible challenge. It's a sort of challenge which yeah, you're right, we would would have landed you in jail anywhere else. Yeah, absolutely right. I, I found you know it's interesting is I, I was looking through uh, a list and uh, I mean our list is, is huge. I mean it includes people like Mark Noble, Lee Cadamol, Craig Bellamy, um John Terry, uh, Martin Keown, Lee Boyer, Lee Boyer, Lee Boyer, however you want to say it. I don't care. How about just Lee Wanker? Uh, Chiellini, uh, Sergio Ramos, Pepe. I mean, you know, there's all sorts, so many players. I mean, and I just realised actually that my overactive mouth has uh, possibly abused a far larger selection of players than I would have assumed possible. Um, but repeatedly, I would have to say for pantomime, pantomime villain for me it's got to be a toss-up between Chesney and Wilshire at this point. I mean, I think we're really cheating Jack Wilshire of one of his finest talents, which is, uh, despite a thoroughly underwhelming career in terms of fulfilling any potential that he might have had and an inability to look after himself properly, it appears, when he got injured. And again, I don't wish injury upon anyone, but I would have to say that recovering from injury uh, in Las Vegas at the pool doesn't seem like the most responsible way of dealing with your health. And again, I, I speculate, but... Uh, the pictures that you would see of Jack Wilshire when he was injured were certainly not, shall we say, very helpful to his reputation. Uh, but this is a man who did stand on a on an open top bus and lead uh, over 300,000 people in a chorus of what do you think of Tottenham? And, uh, you know, I, I just for, for that alone, um, I mean, it's that's pantomime villainy of, 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 of the highest order, I think, uh, you know. And I, I can't help it. It's not fair and it's not nice. It's not pleasant. But his subsequent stop-start career has always been a cause of some sort of schadenfreudist amusement to me. I don't know if that's a nice thing to admit or not, but it is what it is. And Chesney, look, Chesney is, uh, I think he's, I mean, pantomime villain is it's just obvious. I mean, he's always on the wind up with us, always has been, always enjoys a cheeky social media dig at us, always enjoys looking down his nose. And he always has that really horrible, aggravating, superior, smug faced little look on him whenever he does as well. And I, I've heard from people who know him that he's actually an incredibly nice guy. But I yeah. can think of nothing other than wanker when I look at him, which, of course, is where it becomes this is where we underscore it becomes dangerous to mm. uh, to, to associate what you th- feel of these players characters on a football pitch with who they really are gareth mentioned ben foster and um i think keepers are an interesting one because we we talk about the relationship with the fans and, and keepers have got a slightly different relationship with the fans haven't they than most other players because they can't move away from you so and i can think about a number of players that you know opposing goalkeepers you have quite a good rapport with and there's a bit of back and forth isn't there and that can be quite good fun but when you've got a villain in goal it's entirely different oh. 
But Bosnich would be the one that, uh, if we talk about keeper villains, mm. um, who definitely crossed the line. No, I agree. I mean, keepers are, well, they're a rare breed anyway, and that's possibly something we'll talk about on a show at a future date. It would be an interesting uh, thing to, to get into the, the burrages of this world and so on and so forth, legends like that. But, uh, but back to my, 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 my overall villain. And again, I, I've spoken much about Graham Souness in the past and, and, and how I really felt that some, his approach to football for as talented a man as he was, and he was a, a, a brilliant footballer. I found his approach to the game unforgivable at times. Um, but it has to be Charlie Adam. I, I think there was, it was the level of just sheer disrespectful spite in, in, in his, in his work. Uh, that that just really infuriated me, and there were, I mean, I've I, uh, not been the greatest stat man, as, as you all know. I was struggling with the stats, but Milo was able to remind me exactly of when these occurred. I mean, I always remember the Blackpool 2011 when he mm. crocked Bale, did his ankle, and if I remember correctly, Bale's injury cost us somewhat that season. Um, yeah, he was out. He was he was out for three games. Yeah. Missed the final three games of the yeah, season. Yeah, did his ligaments, and it was a really nasty, petulant little challenge. It didn't look like much until you saw it close up but it was nasty it was the work of someone who clearly knew that they were several talent notches below that which they were playing against and you would have thought there would have been some level of culpability or or, or like okay it was you know quietly like yeah fuck there instead he doubled down and did exactly the same sort of thing to Gareth Bale on a, on a pre-season tour in the US against Liverpool um another horrible challenge and uh and 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 he was. I remember. I can't. I don't have the direct quotes, which is. I, mean, I apologise for that. I should have really pulled them out. But he was. He was talking really poorly as well about Bale and sort of disparaging him as a softy almost. He was going for that like you know old pub footballer thing where you know I'm hard and he's not and all this business. And it was just, just looked at him. I just thought you utter wanker. Mm. I mean, really wanker of the highest order. Um, and again, I don't know. Maybe he's a great guy. So I say that. And the caveat to all of this is we don't know uh, and, and we should probably not go too far down the road of judgment. But within a football stadium, he was my king villain. And the fact that Gareth Bale wouldn't accept apology from him, I think tells you an awful lot. Because professionals mm. usually will find a way to forgive each other and so on. You know, I think the final part of what we were going to get into is a small part, really, was if there's anyone's got a personal story or two they want to share about um, engaging Let's put this academically. Uh, any stories you'd like to share about um, engaging uh, democratically with a villain uh, during a game of football? That means abusing someone wildly and spouting all sorts of rubbish. Come on, embarrass yourselves. Well, okay. Well, let me get the story out of the way. I think the only time I've ever I've ever dropped the C bomb in public was, um, and I'm really very proud of it. I was only eighteen at the time. It was the nineteen ninety nine League Cup final. The aforementioned Robbie Savage, mm. and um, I got the chance dancing. Savage, you're a C-U-N-T. Oh, excellent. That was you? Oh, very that good. Was, well, yeah. Oh, excellent. Very good. There was, yeah, I think there were many waves of it. I only started one of the waves of it, but it was, uh, it was, it was. Well, you never forget starting a chant popular. at Wembley, Gareth. I was the one who sounded a klaxon horn right behind, right before <laughs> Glenn Hoddle's free kick in the 81 Cup final that deflected off Hutchinson for the equaliser. That's my bar, 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 bar. You, you claim, claim an assist for that, I do you? I do, yes, yeah. Never forget those. No, it's vital. I love it. Good. I know you fully, you should claim that. And I wish I'd been in the stadium that day to sing it. 
with you. I wasn't. Excellent. A, a fine start. I do remember that uh, giving absolute dog's abuse, and I wasn't alone. On that day, we played Chelsea at the lane when John mm. Terry got sent off. And that was a really, really sweet moment, that was. And we're not mm. sure whether he had something... It's always been rumoured he had something, said something to Ledley or something like that. Yeah, no, nothing like right. that's ever I been confirmed, that. so we won't go there. But... It was such a cauldron of atmosphere that day. And I think, was it Mike Dean that sent him off, I think? That was Phil Dowd. Was it Phil Dowd? Yeah, yeah but Phil there's Dowd nothing said. better in No, it was Graham Pohl. It was Graham Pohl, yeah. Graham, yeah. Phil yeah. Dowd also sent John Terry off a few years later. But yeah, that game you're talking about was Graham Pohl. Yeah, and there's nothing better than having someone who just really do detest having to swallow it as they make the walk to the old tunnel in the West End. It was a really slow walk as well, it wasn't was, it? It, yeah. felt, it was, yeah. Another thing I was going to mention about another team, well, not another team, but another villain is Vinnie Jones, is I always love, do you ever watch the cup final when they played Liverpool? And he just steams mm. into Steve McMahon within the first eight <laughs> seconds. Have you seen that? <laughs> He was it was as hyped up as Gaza, I think, right? It's, and I think as soon as the ref blew the whistle, he just hatcheted him straight away. So interesting, and he thought, "Oh, I know which way this is going to so go." So interesting, you mentioned Vinnie Jones because he's we've gotten the better part of. Well, I don't even want to tell the time yeah. because Milo's cringing at the time that we're in right now, anyway. But uh, we've not really given him uh, a hard time at all, and yet he was part of all of. We all saw him. We all saw, and he yeah, was a you spoke proper about, pantomime. Um, he was full of pantomime. The Gaza ball squeezing. He was more than that though wouldn't yeah, he? he was I was say Milo spoke about the fashion who doing Gary Mabbott yeah. Vinnie Jones effectively ended Gary Stevens' career with a horrible challenge on the yeah. touchline which ruptured Stevens' cruciate ligament at a time when players rupturing cruciate ligaments yeah. was career defining yeah. Yeah. yeah yeah, and we've actually yeah. even we've actually, proper... yeah but we've also let on that note we've let Roy Keane off a bad one as well I mean, we talk oh, about Keane. Yeah. I mean, Harland's, the Harland yeah. thing was in. Oh, that was intentional. That was intentional. It's horrible. Disgusting, yeah. actually. And he's always yeah. got away. I mean, whatever about Harland saying what he said. And Harland did start it. I'm not saying he didn't. You know, he they called him out. But you don't. That was against all professional code and everything. I was really, you know. But but mm. anyway, I I will I will just. Uh, I think I've mentioned before the the lonely trip to West Brom that night in the freezing cold in the early in mid 2000s when the only bright spot was when the camera lights went on and the entire away end just looked at Alan Smith in the broadcasting booth and said big nose you've got a fucking big nose I think we've gone over that but my other one and I don't know if anyone was at this game it was uh it was in November of 2012 when we went to the Death Star and uh, it was when we were wearing that black and silver split shirt it was a bizarre bizarre kit and it was a bizarre game it was under AVB and we started off we were absolutely flying we we, we went one nil up after 10 minutes added by or and then added by or got a straight red for what i would consider a striker's challenge um uh, looking back uh, I, I would probably accept in the mod right now yes okay but at the time i remember there's no more than a yellow um but what was most notable about that game was they had there had been some sort of rule set you basically if you were caught swearing, you were going to get thrown out. But if you saw someone swearing or abusing you or the opposition, you were to call the stewards over and they were going to like make a note and get the police involved. You would then go and get somebody else. So effectively, you know, it, it was like people making notes and it just became a comedy. Like you were just looking at people and saying, he called me a C. Yeah, he called me a C. And someone would pull him over. But then, of course... The horrible dilemma, when Chesney was at our end, you couldn't abuse him because obviously you'd get sent off. So we resorted to a, a, a 45 minutes of polite heckling. It was some of the greatest, like, like Chesney, you're a really nasty man. Like, you know, you unpleasant individual. Like, you know, I can, <laughs> I can smell you from here, you complete wazzock or whatever. Like, just polite heckling and just like, 
bursting into fits of laughter. So my my loudest, I think I, I nearly lost my voice in that 45 minutes because the whole, the game was descended into a farce. We, we were just, you know, and everything. And it just, the whole thing became like a Monty Python episode. That with the fact they had one bartender for the entire away end at half time, which ruined any chances of a few beers nullifying the pain. Uh, it just, the whole thing was bizarre. But that's my most memorable abuse. I'm waiting for Gareth to say he was there that day. And it's the only time he said Wazzock in public. <laughs> <laughs> no, that was the day I met my would-be wife. Oh my <laughs> word! Wow. Hopefully not there. But <laughs> not there. Not there. No. <laughs> but it was brilliant. I was like literally right by the away divide, and you'd look across, and you'd be like looking at someone, be going, and then someone would go, "You fucking run around!" You'd be like come over here he just called me a name he just called me the steward and write a name down and they'd be pointing at their colleagues trying games and you'd be just like laughing it's, it was ridiculous it was just pantomime of the highest order anyway well uh i think we're all enjoying the energy of that england victory a little bit because this has certainly been a little looser i think than perhaps uh we expected um uh, apologies milo i know you've got a lot of cutting to do which you can just cut most of my stuff i was probably talking bollocks most of the time anyway as usual but anyway thanks a lot lads that was a lot of fun sorry i just woke the cat up with that clap thank you but it was a lot of fun <laughs> cheers Steph. thanks lads uh <laughs> cheers we'll it. be back throughout the summer with more specials you know it because you're listening to them week by week and we know that because the numbers are going up and we appreciate it so please keep on uh finding us on twitter and instagram and mentioning us and giving us follows and saying hellos and letting your friends and neighbors and your boss and everyone in the street know it apparently you already are because we are climbing and it's in no uh, uncertain terms thanks to you so please keep on leaving those reviews thanks very much for joining us again we're going to see you next week when hopefully we really will be smiling <laughs>